back to much. Uh, I'm very pleased to introduce uh, the keynote speaker for the summer school, George Graham. George has been kind enough to be here the entire week uh, from the United States and um, uh, is going to give us the final final thoughts for the whole summer school. He saved the best for last, that's what they say, so I'm, I'm sure that's true this time. So I'll leave it to George. It may not be the best, but it certainly is going to be the last. <laughs> okay. And let me begin by saying what a pleasure it is to have been here and met so many of you. I didn't meet many of you. I apologize for that, but it's a privilege to, to be here with you. And I'll share a personal anecdote. When I first started working as a philosopher in philosophy of mental illness, there were very few philosophers doing that kind of work, Bill will remembers. So we are almost as new to the interaction of philosophy and psychiatry as psychiatrists are to the interaction themselves. You can sort of get the impression that there are a bunch of philosophers out there and we've been working for a while and we've got stuff to tell you and stuff to do and you're new to the fold. Well, we may not be neonates, but we're still toddlers ourselves and uh, we're still getting used to the fact that we need to talk to and learn from your own areas. I, uh, being a philosopher, uh, tend not to suffer from hubris. Um, I, I, I tend to think that my job should be in part to construct large-scale theories of as much things as possible. And for the last several years, I've been working on constructing a general theory of mental disorder or mental illness in its various aspects and various dimensions. And I want to talk to you today about one of the aspects, one of the dimensions of the theory that I have constructed. The full theory is available in other places, and parts of the theory are available in other places. For example, the part that I'm going to share with you today is in my contribution to the handbook, and it's also in a volume that's forthcoming with MIT Press on psychiatric classification. Um, I'm not expecting today to give you the full part. I'm expecting to give you what might be called in the culinary field as a taste test. I'm going to give you a taste of the part, and you can decide yourself whether you wish to swallow it and eat more, and we won't worry about that now. Now we're just tasting. And I'm going to begin by pointing out that I am a Luddite. I use no technology whatsoever. I have tried to use transparencies, and my students said they were opaque. <laughs> I have tried to use PowerPoints, and without sounding obscene, students have given me Viagra. I mean, they just don't seem to work for me. So I'm a dinosaur. I have kind of notes. I have kind of a paper. And I'm going to often just sort of lecture and read from my paper and try to finish in enough time so that we have some room for questions. And speaking of questions, Here's the question that I am suggesting we look at today. Why do we need a concept or a category of mental disorder? Do we really need what we are here thinking about? And if we do really need what we are here thinking about, why do we need it? And what kind of concept 
or category will satisfy our need for it. You know, we need a concept of marriage, for example, in order to make permanent or quasi-permanent or less than totally ephemeral commitments the two people make to each other. Commitments that enable them to share in a variety of different legal and social and cultural activities and to raise children. We need a concept of automobile in order to apply to objects that have motors in them and wheels that we can drive around and get from A to B. Why do we need a concept of mental disorder? This is sort of a general question I'm going to ask. And I have an answer to this question, and then I'm going to raise questions about my own answer as I lead up to the specific issue that I want to discuss today. The short answer to my question is this. There are certain forms of human thought and behavior that need to be explained, predicted, understood, and treated in terms of the concept of mental disorder. There are certain types of behavior that human beings engage in, certain forms of thought that they're involved in, that are best understood by grouping them, by botanizing them, by taxonomizing them as forms of something that deserves to be called a mental disorder or an illness. Okay. Can we do this, get this concept, just in terms of the science of neurology? Second question. Or to put it in somewhat different terms, can or should we understand brain disorders as, excuse me, mental disorders as a species of brain disorder? Why aren't we all just neurologists? Or why aren't you just neurologists? Why think in terms of psychiatry? Now, one answer to this question might be, we should all be neurologists, and someday your children will be neurologists, even though they took after you. Because as brain science matures and our understanding of what's involved in the mechanisms that underlie human behavior, much that you now do will evaporate in its explanatory, its predictive, and its treatment theoretic facility. And we don't want to be dualists, so we should welcome the intrusion, the infusion, the regnancy of neuroscience in our life as mental health professionals. No one wants to be a mind-body dualist anymore. If Descartes were alive today, he would be one of your patients. He would have a pineal gland disorder. Okay. He, would, he, would, he would bemoan the fact that he hadn't had treatment before he came up with his arguments for the non-physicality of mentality. Well, I don't think the job is done neurologically, nor do I think we have good evidence to believe it can be done just by brain science. So the answer to my second question, remember the second question is, 
can this be done just in terms of the medical scientific field of neurology is no, it cannot. We need a concept of mental disorder. We need to recognize the phenomenon of mental illness, not without consulting the brain sciences. We need to welcome them. But we do not need to be overwhelmed about them, over-enthused about them. There is a place for a relatively distinct separate field of psychiatry and a concept of mental disorder or mental illness that while it is informed in part by the results that we can get from the brain sciences, is not deformed by being subsumed as a species of brain disorder or brain illness. Third question, if I'm right that a, we do need a concept of mental disorder, and B, it is not just best understood as a brain disorder, how do we get there? And it's this question that I want to explore with you this afternoon. Here's the central thesis, which I'm going to try to explain today. Without PowerPoint, without transparencies, and if I'm opaque, just raise your hand whenever you wish, and I'll be happy to stop and clarify anything I say. What we need, I think, is a way of understanding how something that could be called a mental disorder or a brain disorder can be existentially based in the brain and central nervous system without being a disorder of the brain and central nervous system. This is one way we will have of avoiding the unwelcome consequences of metaphysical dualism, on the one hand, without hugging and kissing um, some kind of overweening reductionism of psychiatry to neuroscience. Now, I used two terms here, in and of, I'm making a distinction between whether a disorder or illness is in the brain and whether it is also of the brain. And one good way of understanding this distinction, I think, is by giving you some analogies for it, okay? These analogies are going to be loose but they give you the spirit of the distinction. And if I'm lucky, they'll tempt you into thinking that you want to know more. Now, I have given this talk to neuroscientists and brain scientists and neurologists. And much like Geo, what I'm saying is controversial, especially in front of them. In fact, I had one member of my audience on one occasion tell me that here I am, a philosopher, just using words. And I said, there you are, a neuroscientist, just using words with me. He punched me. My nose bled. He broke my ankle. I was removed in a hospital. Ambulance, I was flown across the pond. Bill took care of me. He heard my values. I'm a new person. Let's have a round of applause for what Bill did right there. 
That was superb. Okay. So here, here, here we go. Suppose I'm traveling through Paris, Texas. Yes, there is a place called Paris in Texas. I'm spending the night in a motel there, and I have my alarm clock with me. The timing mechanism in the clock fails to show the correct time in Paris, Texas, however, for I had set it earlier for Atlanta, Georgia, which was my point of departure, and which is in a different time zone. I've not reset it for Texas. So an incorrect time is registered in the clock. But that doesn't mean there is a physical malfunction of the clock. Quite the contrary. It does not mean that the clock is damaged. My clock works well, even though it's got the wrong time in it. I'm staying in a motel that has an external entrance from the parking lot. Its door is equipped with a doorbell. In normal circumstances, the ringing of the doorbell carries the information that someone is at the door. But suppose a squirrel somehow pushes the doorbell button. The ring does not indicate that someone is at the door. The bell is failing to do what it's supposed to do. But there's no short circuit or wiring in the bell. The wiring is in perfectly good working order. But the wrong information is now contained in the ring. I brought my computer laptop with me. The motel has a Wi-Fi hotspot. I'm trying to use my laptop to make motel reservations for my final destination, which is San Diego, California. Alas, the computer's reservations making software possesses an annoying glitch. Each time I type Diego, it prints out San Francisco, so I'm having trouble completing the reservation. The software program is running in the hardware or the physical machine states of the computer. But just because the program is in the hardware does not mean that the computer has a disorder of the hardware. The hardware mechanism is not impaired. Rather, the reservations making software is not functioning correctly. In the lobby of the motel sits a newly pregnant woman complaining of nausea. She is suffering from morning sickness. Morning sickness is a bodily condition, a condition in the soma or body, but this does not necessarily mean that the woman's body is biologically unhealthy or has broken down or is diseased. Not only is it quite normal to feel morning sickness when pregnant, but except in severe cases when, for example, serious dehydration occurs because of vomiting, it may express a proper or healthy function in biological or adaptational terms. Morning sickness may be an evolutionary adaptation that protects first trimester fetuses from food poisoning. It may be a healthy defense mechanism, nothing inescapably pathological, and not a true somatic illness per se, except in severe cases. I'm the woman's husband, and I'm not in the motel with her. I'm out rowing a boat on a nearby lake. And I've never been on a boat before, let alone on a lake, because I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. And for me, a lake was a puddle, and it didn't have enough room for boats. To my surprise, when I place the oar in the water, it appears bent at the point at which it meets the surface of the water. 
Unbeknownst to me, the human visual system fails to compensate for the optical effect of refraction. It furnishes me with misinformation. Yet this does not mean that the system is functioning improperly or is damaged. It means that the failure to furnish proper information about a perfectly straight stick takes place in the system, not that there's something wrong with the system. Now, what's the point of these stories? The point is this. There can be disorders or failures in a system, in a clock, in a doorbell, in a computer, in the body, in the visual system, and also, I want to argue, in the brain and central nervous system, which should not be assumed to be disorders of the system. A simple distinction, often overlooked in discussions of whether or not mental disorders are brain disorders. Well, I'm not finished. That's not enough to defend a distinction. That's not even partially explanatory. That's just an appetizer for what's yet to come, and at best, a barely tolerable one, unless you know the complete story. So let me tell you more of the story. Let's take a look at neurology. Let's see what neurology does when it does what it does. Let's see how neurology works. How does neurology describe brain disorders when neurologists think that they have spotted a brain disorder? I want to talk to you now a bit about the science of neurology and how it does what it does when it thinks it does it well. And let me tell you what I'm including in the science of neurology. I'm including neuroanatomy, which studies the structural components of the brain. I'm including neurochemistry, neurobiology, and neurodynamics, which respectively study the molecular, biological, and electrical foundations of behavior. I'm including neuropsychology, which attempts to localize mental activity in particular neural processes and I'm including neurocomputationalism, which uses computer models to model the neurochemistry, neurobiology, and neurodynamics of the system. I'm including a lot. Okay, that's it. Any questions? I have this rule when I'm lecturing to students that observes a very famous experiment that was conducted by George Miller, president of the American Psychological Association. Okay. Miller was asked by the telephone company to identify the average number of semantically disconnected units that could be remembered by a typical human being. So if you had a list of 30 things, an automobile, a tow, a mountain, your boyfriend, a book, how many could you remember after you studied the list for a certain period? And he came up with the answer seven, and he wrote a paper called seven, the magic number seven plus or minus two. And that's why seven numbers became the numbers of a New York telephone number absent the area code. And I tell my students that for every hour I talk, I expect them to get seven minutes. 
and randomly distributed, and I don't want them to lose four of those seven minutes when I've only started talking, so that's why we're having this break. Okay, because if you only have three minutes left, I'm in trouble. So this is just sort of a mind break, sort of a pause in the telephone system. Okay. This gets controversial right about here. Fortunately, I'm now appointed in my university's neuroscience department, so I have some cred. But when I was just a philosopher, what I was about to say upset people. It goes like this. When we look at how neuroscience operates and how neurology operates, when it identifies a, ment a, a, a brain disorder or a neurological illness, um, there is a norm that it assumes must be met by any properly so-called neuroscience-discovered uh, neurological disorder. The norm is something I call the brain science constraint, and it applies to your prototypical <coughs> neurological illnesses or disorders, such as Alzheimer's, epilepsy, Parkinson's, and so on. These are conditions that unquestionably count as brain disorders. <coughs> and one feature held in common by all of them, aside, of course, from the harmfulness of a disorder, is that each and every such condition hopes to receive its best description of its proximate, that is to say, its most immediate causal foundations and behavioral powers from neuroscience alone. So for example, the following hypothesis would be ruled out. People harbor Parkinson's because of job-related emotional distress and imprudent beliefs or desires. That's ruled out. But the following kind of explanation is ruled in. People suffer from Parkinson's because they suffer from a degenerative disorder of the brain that's responsible for the condition's motor and cognitive disturbances. And this includes damage to the dopaminergic, serotonergic, and various other neurochemical pathways in particular that help to produce the condition's distinctive deficits. And what's being observed there is something which I call the brain science closure constraint. That is to say, if this is going to be a neurological disorder, the best understanding of the causal consequences of that disorder and the immediate or the proximate causal foundations of this disorder must come within brain science alone. They can't come from cultural anthropology or family psychology or the study of stress at the workplace. They have to come from within the disciplinary boundaries tethered to the disciplinary methods of this particular kind of disorder that it's thought we, we are taking care of. Now we know from our ordinary forms of human behavior that we can explain and understand and predict a great deal of human behavior without knowing anything whatsoever about the brain. So here's one quick example of what I mean by what I just said. 
why is it, how is it, that we're able to understand a great deal of what we do and others do without even knowing what a neuron is? Okay, here's an example. Suppose I'm at a large family dinner table with my aunt and uncle, and suppose I ask Auntie Anne at the family table to pass the pepper shaker to me. Now, in order to explain why she passes the pepper shaker, if she does, I need only to assume a few things. I need to assume that she understands what I've asked, she desires to honor my request, and she believes that the best way to honor it is to reach for the pepper shaker and hand it to me. There is absolutely no need for me to nominate an area of the brain or neural network to understand this behavior. If, however, her behavior gives me good reason for thinking that it's not under volitional control, then I might need to turn to my cousin, who's a neuroscientist, and ask him to explain the following. Suppose that when she reaches for the pepper shaker, she throws it out my head, the window is open, and it goes outside and lands on the street. Okay. I might think, my cousin might think, that she suffers from a brain disorder or malfunction or deficit. And if I'm really eager to know more about Annie Ann, I don't need to know more about her beliefs or her desires or her attitude towards me as her nephew. I need to know more about such things as colossal tumors and infrocs and other things that have happened to her executive motor control system. Now, scores of papers by philosophers and others have been written on just how to distinguish between when reference to brain science is needed and when it's not. But to me, the best paper that's ever been written on this subject is not on the subject. It's a paper by a very distinguished philosopher at Princeton named David Lewis, who died recently, and it occurs in a paper of David's called Scorekeeping in a Language Game. And David, like me, likes to use analogies, so I'm going to give you one of his analogies, and then I'm going to cross back, cross over, and go back to the case of Auntie Anne. What Lewis argues in his paper is that when we use terms in any language, and especially in the sciences, these terms are used in a context where there are what he calls rules of accommodation that accommodate the fact that what a term means in one context need not be the same as what it means in another context. So suppose, for example, we think of a word or a term like the word or term flat. Okay. This is clearly a context-sensitive term. Just how flat a surface has to be in order for a sentence describing the surface as flat to be true is variable and not an invariant manner. A surface flat by the standards of a game of soccer or field hockey is not flat by the standards of a game of billiards, where the norms for flatness change. Now, the basic point that Lewis is making here, I think, translates into talking not just about flat, but in talking about what causes what. 
I'm what's called a contextualist about causation or causal explanation. For me, just as it's a variable matter as to what counts as a flat surface, so it is a variable matter as to what counts as a cause. And just as there is a context in which one plays soccer and in which one plays billiards, so there is a context in which someone tries to explain and predict behavior. So let's go back to Auntie Anne. Suppose Uncle Max is there and I ask him to please pass the pepper shaker. Now here, what I initially tried with Annie Ann is gonna work. I gotta assume that he knows what I want, that he desires to help, and lo and behold, he hands the pepper shaker to me. But not so in the case of Annie Ann's frustrated attempt. Because in her case, the standards for scoring, the standards for explaining, have changed. She is now playing, as it were, on a billiard table, whereas Max was playing on a soccer field. And we need to shift our standards away from talk about what Annie Ann believes and what she desires, and we need to start talking about the role that a tumor plays in her volitional control system. Now my idea goes something like this. Okay? In order to preserve a concept of mental disorder, that is distinct from the concept of a brain disorder. It helps not only to make the linguistic distinction between whether a disorder is in the brain versus of the brain, but it helps to appreciate the kind of contextual circumstances under which questions about the nature of a disorder are best answered in neuroscientific terms and when they're best answered in psychiatric or psychological terms. So just as we can switch contexts and change the ground for scoring, so we can switch contexts and change the ground for explaining. What we know about the brain from evolutionary biology and evolutionary neuroscience is that it has not been designed by Mother Nature exquisitely dedicated to preserving mental health and psychiatric or personal well-being. It's not the case that every time a serious disturbance occurs in a person's life that they can't manage or control, that something is wrong with neural mechanisms. Remember the squirrel. Remember the ore in the water. One of the things we've learned about the brain is that its true evolutionary story is likely to be extremely complex and that it doesn't underwrite every markedly unwelcome and unhealthy form of behavior in individuals. Let me give you a quick illustration of what I mean. The brain's been designed, so among other things, it subserves what is called a variable ratio schedule of reinforcement learning. There are huge evolutionary advantages and adaptational utilities to this form of learning. As you may know from your undergraduate psychology text, what happens in the variable ratio schedule is reinforcement occurs only occasionally and unpredictably. As counterintuitive as it may appear, a behavior that is only reinforced on some conditions can become deeply entrenched 
and more impervious to change than behaviors that have been reinforced on other conditions. This is an ideal form of learning, by the way, for species that have to hunt for their food, where the availability of prey and their capturability is quite unpredictable and variable. And so we have a neural reward mechanism, one of whose roots for learning, among others, is not to abandon the hunt just because of a single failure or two. We may need to attempt several times to climb up the tree to get the banana or secure a prey in the bush. Now, unfortunately, where we take our brain can give us trouble. If I take this capacity for variable reg, uh, ratio schedule reinforcement learning to a racetrack or gambling casino, instead of getting the monkey or securing the squirrel or capturing the fish or getting the bana banana, I may get myself hooked on a form of behavior which is ultimately extremely deleterious that I have a great deal of time pulling myself out of. Now, the brain is doing what it should. That's how it's been designed. But I'm not doing what I should. Where should I go? Should I go see a neurologist or a neuroscientist, or should I speak to a psychiatrist who uses values-based, rather than evidence-based, a psychiatrist who has no interest in the evidence at all? That's a joke. <laughs> That's a joke. This is another break now in my seven minutes. Okay. Or should I go see an evidence-based, uh, values-based psychiatrist? Now, next big part. One way in which, on my judgment, we can learn whether we have before us a brain disorder or a mental disorder is by looking at the kinds of therapies and forms of intervention that we have at our disposal and trying to understand which ones work and why. I'm a big fan of putting the cart before the horse. Okay? I'm a big fan of learning how to diagnose by learning what best treats. The normal rule of thumb is you've got a diagnosis and then, given the diagnosis, you generate a kind of treatment. But oftentimes, we can't work that way, because we don't quite know what we have at our disposal, and we're not quite in a position to know what form of intervention is best. And so we have to what's called reverse engineer. We have to switch things back, and we have to look at the kind of incentive structure and sort of treatment that may work in one case and not another, and see what best explains it. In some cases, we're going to get the best explanation just from brain science. In other cases, we're going to have a lot of psychology and our understanding of what's working. So, here we go. The world of psychiatric medicine and medicine in general is filled with all kinds of therapies and treatments and clinical interventions that are designed to restore or rebuild a person's neural or mental health, or at least ensure that the harmfulness of a disorder is halted. I like to make a distinction between two broadly understood forms of therapy or treatment. I call one 
reason-responsive therapy. Reason-responsive therapy appeals to the overall rationality and sensitivity of a patient and works directly on that sensitivity and reasoning capacity. There's a second type of therapy that bypasses reason and treats individuals through mechanical forms of treatment that don't make direct appeal to their reason sensitivity. And I call these mechanical stance therapies, examples of which are things like psychosurgery, transcranial magnetic stimulation of superficial brain structures, deep brain stimulation, pharmacology, various neuroleptics, antidepressant drugs, neurostabilizers, and so on. And examples of what I call reason-responsive therapy include things like Freudian psychotherapy, rational motive therapy, interpersonal therapy, reality therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness therapy, philosophy therapy. Do you know there are even philosophers who do therapy? There's a form of therapy called philosophy therapy. In fact, I, I reviewed a faculty member at City University who specialized in philosophy therapy, and I was asked to comment on whether or not he deserved tenure. And I wrote back and I said, I can't work on this case unless I know more about his patients. They withdrew the invitation. Okay, but you see the picture. Now, reason-responsive therapy targets a person's rational powers, and it aims for the following resort. Roughly, it aims to redirect and improve a person's self-knowledge and self-understanding under the assumption that this improvement in self-knowledge and self-understanding will get them through the incapacitating effects of their disorder. So as you know, a Freudian psychoanalyst may ask a person to reflect on their childhood. A cognitive behavioral therapist may ask a person to reflect on their thoughts that they have in immediate circumstances. This is not to say that you can use this kind of therapy without using the other, because remember, I said a disorder can be in the brain without being of the brain, and since even if it's a mental disorder, it's still in the brain, mechanical uh, forms of treatment may need to be complemented alongside those of reason-responsive treatment. Mood stabilizers, for example, are sometimes necessary for a patient because they can really, before they can really profit from psychotherapy. Okay. Mechanical stance therapies deal explicitly with mechanisms as mechanisms. They leave a direct and explicit appeal to a person's reasons for actions out of the interventionist equation. Now the question is, given that there are these different types of therapies or interventions, what, if anything, can be learned from them about whether or not someone is suffering from a mental disorder as opposed to a brain disorder. Okay. Here we go. Well, one thing that can be learned if the key phases or defining symptoms of a disorder are utterly unaffected and unrelieved by treatments that address a person's reason responsiveness, okay, then this lends prima facie credence to the proposition that the disorder in question deserves to be called a brain disorder rather than a mental disorder. For example, the bradykinesia, the slowness of movement and rigidity that are characteristic of Parkinson's disease, 
are utterly uncontrollable by any form of therapy aimed at a patient's reasons for action, although there's some elements of the condition that are improved at least temporarily. Uh, um, uh, by talking to a patient and having uh, therapy sessions to help them reduce anxiety about their condition. So, if we may assume this, the damage or dysfunctionality that's operative in Parkinsonism is a damage or dysfunctionality that is properly studied and best understood in terms of brain science. And we can get good reason for looking to brain science because reason-responsive therapies of a wide variety of different sorts have failed to work. Here's a second lesson. It's the converse of the first. If a disorder favorably responds to reason-responsive therapy, then other things being equal, such evidence suggests that we are warranted in thinking of the condition as a mental rather than a brain disorder. Consider, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, we could reduce the frequency of the occurrence of post-traumatic stress disorder by removing stress from the world. Get rid of wars, terrorist attacks, rapes, and other violent assaults. End of post-traumatic stress disorder. That form of therapy is called utopian social therapy. And you can read about it in science fiction works. It ain't real. We've got to focus on the person and the problem and the experiences that they have had. Okay. Suppose that some people, maybe not all, because some forms of PTSD may actually be best understood as brain disorders, respond favorably to various kinds of reason-responsive Therapy. Suppose, for example, that therapies that guide a victim of this condition through their memories, enable them to reassess them, begin to think of themselves as not mired in the past, begin to think of their future in a hopeful, responsible way, begin to think that it's possible for them with proper environmental support to reclaim and rebuild their life. Suppose that that kind of therapy works, then we might think that we're dealing with a mental disorder. And we might hesitate, for example, to prescribe beta blockers so as to knock out the flight and fight response that people have oftentimes when they're traumatized. So what I'm suggesting here is one route to distinguishing between the two kinds of disorders, and they're not the only route, is to turn around and go back where we came from, and instead of going from diagnosis to treatment, go from treatment to diagnosis. Now this is a complicated claim on my part, and it's filled with nuances. One of my favorite philosophers is William James, and William James said, Whenever you're giving a paper, whenever you're giving a talk, state your thesis as boldly as possible and then end it by backtracking, qualifying, and leaving the room. Okay. So I've got a kind of a bold thesis here, and I'm perfectly prepared to backtrack a tad, but I'm going to stick with it for a, for a bit. 
Let me sum things up here. What would it profit a person to visit a psychiatrist for visual blindness caused by extensive bilateral damage to the striate or striate cortex of the occipital lobe? Or to secure the services of a neurosurgeon for suicidal ideation on the death of a spouse? You got to know who to go to to take care of what's wrong with you. We got to keep our disciplines disciplined if we're to properly deal with the problems that people have and respond to why we have a concept of mental disorder and need it in the first place. Okay. My claim is that the success or failure of various types of therapy may contain lessons about the proper categorization of a disorder. In a paper discussing a book by Bishop John Robinson, who was Jen the Bishop of Warwick, and his book was called Honest to God and was published in 1963, the good bishop announced what appeared, at least in terms of traditional Christian theology, to be his own personal atheism. The bishop said, I'm an atheist. But he didn't leave his bishopy position. Alistair McIntyre, who was a teacher of mine in grad school, wrote a review of the good bishop's book, and he said the following, and I don't mean to offend anyone here who's a citizen of the United Kingdom by what I'm about to say. I'll let Alistair offend you. This is called indirect offense. Okay. Here's what Alistair said. It seems to be a religious creed of the English, quote, that there is no God, but it's wise to pray to him from time to time. Okay. Well, I've written what I've written in this book and in other books and in my talk today as a skeptical reaction to the thesis that the conditions that deserve to be classified as mental disorders can be adequately understood as disorders of the brain. And I know there are mental health professionals who agree with me, and I know some of you are here. God bless you. But I'm tempted to think that there currently is afoot a creed for psychiatry that goes something like the following. There is no brain science of mental disorder, but it's wise to pay homage to it from time to time, which is the analog of Alistair's point. Okay. In the study of mental disorder, deploying brain science is inescapable, because if I'm right that the disorders are in the brain, we have at least something to learn from the role of the brain in these disorders. That brain science should be a contributor to our understanding of mental disorder. But it's one thing to contribute, and it's another thing to govern, and contribution and governance should be distinguished. Paying homage to brain science as explanatory regnant, in my judgment, is mistaken. And we need not fear distinguishing between a mental disorder and a brain disorder that we make ourselves vulnerable to the charge that we're dualists. Thanks very much. Okay, if we have time for any questions. Yeah, we have 
I'm not going to do my Chris Frith imitation. If there was something I said that you didn't understand that you'd like me to repeat, or if there's some general question that you want to ask that's completely independent of my talk, feel free to do so. Yes. So I, I just, I'm trying to get a handle on the contextualism stuff about causality and how it fits into the picture. Um, so I don't, I don't think this is a, a view that you want to endorse, but one way of thinking, so if I accept that our causal talk is highly contextual, um, one lesson you might want to draw from something like that is to say, well, um, so in, in some cases we talk about mental states causing things, um, in other cases we talk about brain states causing things, um, but we're not really talking about anything different in those cases. It's just some contexts it's right to use mental language, in some contexts it's right to use brain language. Um, but there's no, it's not really a disagreement. Um, and that's sort of all consistent with being uh, kind of uh, mind-brain identity mm -hmm. sort of theorists. Um, I don't, I don't think that's the view you want. But I don't. Um, okay, let's talk about this a bit. Let me back up just a tad to see if I'm right about the motivation for your question. Okay. Um, Sometimes we use different languages to describe one and the same thing in different ways. And we regard the languages as more or less interchangeable, but perhaps for pragmatic reasons, we deploy one kind of language rather than another. So, for example, I don't know much about cars, but when it doesn't start, I come up with an explanation my alternator is broke again. I don't really know what an alternator is, but I've been told that before, so that's why I come up with that hypothesis. I take it to a mechanic, and he has another explanation. And the alternator is broken, but there's a reason why the alternator is broken, and I'm completely in the dark about that. So I've done okay by my explanation, but it's not complete. It needs to be supplemented by his explanation, and he has more knowledge than I do. That's one conception of the relationship between appealing to a mental cause and a physical cause, that those of us who talk about the causal powers of mind are talking about alternators, and those of us that are talking about the causal powers of brains are talking with the greater information at their disposal than I am, okay? That's not my model. Okay. I, I was trying to not uh, go into the greater information part, but yeah. just to sort of think that okay. I need, okay, to help me then, I need an example of what you might have in mind. Um, it's a great question, so I want to make sure I honor it. By so I guess maybe maybe what I don't fully understand is what it means to be a contextualist about causation. Okay. So I thought the thought I had was something like, if I make a sort of causal claim okay. in one context, that's that's yeah. right. If I were in a totally different context, I might not. That wouldn't. So an analogy with the flat case. All right. So okay. I know the question now. 
When we are doing causal explanations of phenomena, there are certain things that we want to explain in one setting and not in another setting. So for example, why is it that this particular family, the vast majority of the men in the family are alcoholics? Why is it that in that particular family, the vast majority of men in the family are not alcoholics at all, in fact, they abstain from drink? We might turn to cultural factors to help to explain that. In one case, it's an Irish-American family that lives in Boston, right? Let's play some stereotypes here. In another case, it's a Muslim family that comes from Istanbul. And we might look at cultural explanations. And notice what we'd be doing there. We'd be looking at what might be called distal causes, causes that are not what I call proximate, causes that are not near at hand to their effects. And sometimes we're interested in answering questions in a distal context, and because we're answering questions in a distal context, no reference at all is ever made or needs to be made to the brain. And sometimes our evidential range is over different things. So in one context, we're dealing with Irish immigrants in Boston. In another context, we're dealing with people that have grown up in Istanbul. Okay? That's not an instance of what I regard as causal contextualism. That's an interest of what I regard as identifying distal rather than proximate causes. That's the relevant distinction there. Okay. Here's another case of what I don't mean by causal contextualism. Okay. I'm giving two cases of what I don't mean, and then I'll give you one case of what I do mean. Okay. Um, here's another case of what I don't mean. Um, He died. He crashed his car into a tree. Why did that happen? Two explanations. Explanation one, the road was slippery. And when he stepped on the brakes, he lost control of the car, and it smashed into a tree. Explanation two, he was on his cell phone talking to his values-based psychiatrist, and he was so wrapped up in the discussion that he got distracted and crashed into a tree. Okay. Now we've got two competing explanations. Okay. They're competing, but they're not contextualized because they lock heads and we can see which evidence supports one explanation rather than the other. That's not what I mean by contextualism. So let me give you an example of what I do mean by contextualism. Um, first off, part of what makes something a cause, and I'm going to use some technical terminology here, which I'll try to re-explain in non-technical terms, but part of what we mean by a cause is it supports something called counterfactual conditionals. Let me give you an example of what I mean by a counterfactual conditional. I had a friend from high school that went to college and wrote a paper for a history course called If Stonewall Jackson Had Lived, the South Would Have Won the Civil War. If Stonewall Jackson Had Lived, the South Would Have Won the Civil War. What my friend was doing was picking out a cause of the Civil War 
that never would have been in place on his mind had the Southern General Stonewall Jackson not been killed. Jackson's presence would have enabled the South to deal with the Union Army led by Grant. He was making a counterfactual claim. Had such and such happened, something wouldn't have happened. Sometimes we go the other way. Let's look at the car case. Had the road not been wet, I would not have crashed. But were the road to be wet on other conditions, a crash would have occurred. Had so-and-so not be talking to his psychiatrist, he never would have smashed into the tree. So sort of, sort of a counterfactual, had circumstances been different. Part of what this means for our understanding of a cause is that for something to be a cause, it pulls the trigger on an event. And if something keeps that trigger from being pulled, the assumption is the event in that circumstance would not have taken place. So let's go back now and look at the mental psychological case, because now I'm going to illustrate how it works here, or try to illustrate how it works here. Take gambling. Okay. Someone, let's say, is addicted to gambling at a casino or gambling at a racetrack. Okay. The question is, what best explains that? Now, imagine that what we want out of an explanation is something that supports a suitable set of counterfactual conditionals. And let's suppose we come up with the following explanation. Okay, so-and-so is addicted to gambling at the racetrack because he was taken there as a young child by his uncle. That's a distal fact. He watched his uncle bet on the horses. That's a distal fact. As he grew up, he went to the track on his own. That's a distal fact. And he got hooked on the same schedule of reinforcement that his uncle did. That's a distal and approximate fact. And now let's look at that proximate fact. How do we understand that fact, that he was hooked on a variable ratio schedule of reinforcement? In order to do that, we have to appeal to such things as he placed bets, he wanted to win, he kept track of the best horses. We have to pack a lot of psychology into our explanation. We don't really have to say anything more about the brain at that point. We've got everything we need to support counterfactual generalizations just from that. We can say things like, had his uncle not taken him to the track, he wouldn't be gambling now. Had he not gone there on his own, he wouldn't be gambling now. Had he not exposed himself to a very, it wouldn't have happened now. And we can stop right there. We've got that context in place. And we don't need brain science. So part of what it means to be a causal contextualist for me is, you look at the context, you look at distal situations, proximate situations, you identify what you take to be things that may be causally salient, you zero in on them, and you see if they can support relevant counterfactual generalizations. You don't set the standard pre-high. You don't assume that when you're looking for flat, you're looking at a billiard table. 
you're out there on the soccer field, i.e. the racetrack. What often happens when we do science, and what often happens when philosophers try to tell scientists how to do science, is they try to legislate what counts as a good explanation. Or as I like to put it, they take out the, the, the cue stick and the billiard ball, and they say, if you want an explanation, that's the only thing that's gonna count. What I mean is something quite different. Okay, and notice the way I told my story, it had a very rough grain to it. Now that's not to say that some talk and discussion of neural activity is irrelevant. The dopaminergic reward system has certainly got to kick in in any reinforcement schedule, and we might have a case of someone who is engaging in the same behavior as the person that I described, but to use Don Ross's term, the brain reward system is in mutiny and the behavior is no longer under control of something as simple as a variable reinforcement schedule, okay, but the brain reward system has fallen outside of an individual's executive control. He or she is no longer, you know, gambling because of that schedule, but gambling for some other reason. Now, we're playing billiards. Does that help a little bit? Okay, it's a wonderful question, and I... Didn't mean to have a super long answer to it, but, okay, any other questions? Yes, Anthony. I might have a question for you, but first I want to make sure I'm clear on one of your conclusions. Okay. Um, what was your ultimate conclusion when we were talking about um, how we should start looking at the efficacy of treatments um, based on the, the mechanical ones versus the ones that are yes. psychological? My ultimate conclusion was ceteris paribus, that is to say, other things being equal. I'm not claiming that when we are trying to determine whether something is a brain disorder or a mental disorder, we rely only on the success or failure of different forms of intervention. That's not what I'm claiming. A whole variety of factors are necessary to get a handle on that. But I am claiming that intervention can teach us a lesson about what kind of disorder it might be, but there are a lot of qualifiers there. One source of the qualifications is quite complicated. Because I'm not a dualist and I'm not defending dualism, and I'm admitting that there's a real sense in which the disorder is brain-based existentially, I'm not denying that there can be some non-responsive forms of therapy that are useful and sometimes required for a mental disorder. So the pool gets kind of muddied there, you know? It's like, uh, uh, I, I had a friend, for example, who went uh, through a very, 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 very severe divorce. And my friend um, really fell into a very profound kind of funk or depression or grief response. But he found it very difficult to talk about his marriage just could not do it. And very difficult to talk about his own failure as a husband. So he was put on some, uh, you know, serotonin and ate a lot of bananas and so on, and finally was able to get into a position where he could respond to reason responsive therapy. Now that's no accident for me, because I'm conceding that even in a case of mental disorder, there's a neurological existential base for it. Okay, does that help a little bit? Did you have a question? Yeah, I do. Um, okay. I, I'm going to speak up quickly. 
Yes. Yes. I'm familiar with it, and so go ahead and ask the question. Yeah. Good. No, that's a great question, and it's a question that's especially prominent when we try to distinguish between treating an illness and enhancing a person. One of the issues that you sometimes get with using drugs as a form of enhancing someone's capacity is exactly how are the drugs doing the job of enhancing, and in a way, you're using the drug to perform something midway between direct treatment of the illness and enhancement. You're using it as what I like to call a compensational scaffold. You're trying to find uh, something that will assist the person without necessarily insisting that what you're trying to help them deal with is a brain disorder. And I welcome that. I mean, let a thousand flowers bloom, and that happens quite a bit. Jennifer has written some nice work on that. What I'm, what I'm here, here's something too that I, I want to be very, very, very clear about. I'm not a hard-edged person about concepts. When I say there's a distinction between mental disorder and brain disorder, I'm not saying that the distinction is a hard and fast one. It's vague, it's nebulous around the edges. There are all kinds of zones of indeterminacy that we have to deal with. Um, I have a semantic theory to use a philosopher's terminology to help explain what I mean. It's called prototype semantics, and it leaves plenty of room for cases like Jennifer's. The field is kind of mushy in some places. Jennifer makes another interesting point in something she's done about this. She's pointed out that in some occasions, we might be thinking of rebotanizing a disorder because of the way certain kinds of treatments work on it. And one case in particular is the way depression is sometimes treated, has turned out to work very effectively drug-wise with some cases of anxiety. And so the question that might be raised is whether or not depression in some cases is closely related with anxiety in some common illness. So there's an awful lot of stuff still to be learned there. And your question is a great question. Thank you, Anthony. Yes. Um, I'd like to go back to the Parkinson's. To the Parkinson's, yes. And, uh, and maybe it's because I'm not a person, I don't really understand the kind of nature of the project that you're doing. I'll okay. Explain what I mean. Um, and it bears on the question of the very first thing you said is why do we need a concept of mental disorder? I wasn't sure who the we is. Yes. Do we need you know, society generally or philosophers or neuroscientists or neurologists? Okay. But 
it happens to be the case that in Parkinson's, and you spoke to Luigi Gamble, that some patients with advanced Parkinson's can't use a result of treatment for gambling disorders in a range yes. of <laughs> Now, one thing that troubles me about your approach, even though you're, you know, you're not being dualistic, is that there's a risk of kind of, sort of clinical closure in understanding these disorders. And I'll give you an example. You know, people theorize about um, the impulse control disorders in Parkinson's, what you, what you always find is immediately um, very hardcore neuroscience, dopamine-based, circuit-based theories. Now, it happens to be that another part of the neuroscience world, of the psychology world, is a wonderful stream of research about the influence of life stress, early <coughs> life stress, all these sorts of things, in generating the propensity for impulse control disorders. But it kind of vanishes when you move into the neurology world and try to understand impulse control disorders as this. Now, it may be the case that in these Parkinson's patients, sort of biology all the way up, that all this you know, other stuff is irrelevant. But it may be the case that actually it is very relevant that the people who do okay. impulse control disorders that don't with Parkinson's, okay. it's because of other psychological okay. experiences. And okay, and good, good, good. Let me try to rephrase your question so that I see if I understand it. And so your question goes something like this. You might take a condition like Parkinson's, which is a neurological condition, which is a brain disorder, but there may be forms of treatment of this condition that reduce some of the symptomatology. So for example, the kind of anxiety that Parkinson's patients feel. And these forms of treatment, sometimes they may be drug-related, but sometimes they may be forms of psychotherapy. And this kind of makes it look as if, if there are parts of Parkinsonism that can be treated in non-mechanical ways, then there may be parts of Parkinsonism that are best not understood in non-mechanical terms. That's your point, right? Okay. Now, um, I'm very happy with that because of something else that, um, that I think is the case. First off, some of the symptoms of a condition may sometimes not be best understood or even best treated, in, as, as ironic as this is going to sound, as part of that condition. Patients that suffer from severe Alzheimer's, for example, often start to develop paranoid delusions. And the question is, is that part of Parkinsonsism or is it part of something else? I think it's part of something else, and here's how it goes. Now I'm going to use a metaphor. I hate the accordion as an instrument, but I use the accordion very often in answering questions like this. The accordion has pleats, right? And the pleats collapse, and then they open up. Illnesses very often open up in a wide variety of different pleats, and you have a situation where further out on the pleatscape, one pleat affects another pleat in a non-mechanical way. So for example, if someone has severe memory loss, an autobiographical memory loss, and they don't remember where objects are or why they're in a room, they may start to develop some conspiratorial theory that the world is out to get them. That means that there's a pleat out here, the autobiographical memory loss, that's influencing the pleat out there. 
namely, right, the paranoia. That relationship between the memory loss of autobiography and the paranoia might be quite understandable in, as, as in some sense of the word, not straightforwardly a mechanical relationship, okay? So you can have a condition that opens up the pleats and has symptoms of the condition influence other symptoms in ways which don't speak to the nature of the condition if, for example, we've decided it's a neurological disorder. It's not doing this in, in a straightforward neurological way. The second point, I don't think of conditions as conditions. I think of them as processes. I think of them as unfolding over time and having different kinds of aspects to them and different dimensions to them as they develop over time. Take the condition of being depressed, for example, which is commonly described as a mood disorder, okay? That's a huge misnomer. If you've known anybody who is depressed and suffers from depression, the idea that there's something about the mood which is abiding and permanent is, is, is crazy. There's a whole way of entering into life. Let's use some geo-terminology. The life world of a depressed person includes beliefs, desires, moods, actions, inactions, ways of relating or not relating to other people, self-conceptions, ways of understanding themselves, ways of withdrawing from previous sources of pleasure and happiness, which can be very complicated in depressed people. Now, once you open up those across-time pleats, you get relationships between these different behaviors that have to sometimes be explained in different ways than the onset of the condition and the con persistence of the condition itself. You know? So I don't mind using condition talk, but it's a, it's, it's a historical condition. It's, okay? So that's another thing there. Yes? I think I want to ask how necessary what you're saying is. It's extremely okay. necessary. No, no, you, don't, you haven't heard what I mean by necessary. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's this. Let's say that certain therapies work, in particular the rational therapy. Mm -hmm. Now, what I want to know is, is it necessary that we have a rational therapy as far as we're concerned? So if it works, it shows oh, this is a, okay, yeah, I that could. it was the right one the right one, yes. and it's necessary that we use it. Because there's another way we could think about this, which yeah. is, okay, the rational therapy works because, for the moment, common sense is the theory that we've got. Now, I'm playing devil's advocate. I understand. Yeah. Um, so the devil's advocate says, but we could develop a new vocabulary that will work even better. Not because the brain is disordered, but you've agreed that it's in the brain. Mm -hmm. So if it's in the brain, whether we say it's disordered or not, we might still be able to approach it from the brain when we learn more. Yeah. So the question is, how necessary is a certain level of explanation? Okay, now, there's a short answer to this question and a long one. I'll give you the short one, which is about 45 minutes. <laughs> it's only a joke. Don't worry. It's going to be quicker than that. I love this question. It's a wonderful question. And let me see if I can rephrase it to make sure I understand it. 
look, George, as long as you think the disorder is in the brain, you know, maybe you could treat your computer this way. You don't necessarily have to attack the software when it keeps registering San Francisco and you type San Diego. Just go in and make the glitch in, in the electro, uh, electronic relationships between the cells and the computer, and you can, you can make a change in what happens with the key. Well, I don't know. Let's see where it goes. But you know, I like. Okay. Uh, so yeah, um, there there are two problems with that. Um, two reasons. There's, I mean, the long story has like five parts to the answer, but this is the short answer. Um, when you do that, you run a risk the risk of what I call the ham fist. The fist that goes in and changes something mechanically and addresses the job that has consequences in other domains of psychological, is that what you thought I'd say? Other domains of psychological activity and you don't, once they start, you're in real trouble because you don't know exactly how you did that. So you're making the epistemic situation even worse. There's a second part to the answer, and it has to do with ethics. When you're treating a person that has a psychiatric illness or psychiatric disorder, one of your goals is not simply to help them, but to help them maintain their dignity and self-respect or recover it. And it's a fact about us as human beings that when our reason is addressed, we tend to feel we're really being treated as a person. We're being treated as someone who is not just a dog and has been retrained, or not just an organ that has been resutured, but someone that is starting to get more in charge, more in control of their own behavior. Let's take a case of, yeah, go ahead. Can I just say that, sure. actually, I think that's so important. Yes. That I would make the claim that it's necessary. Yes. It's necessary if we don't want to lose our personhood. Yes. Okay. But it's not it may not be necessary from another perspective yes. if we're happy to become more robotic. Yes. To be less of our to lose our personhood. So yes. there's a sense in which it's an option yes. to lose something. Yes. Well, I cracked a joke last night. I mentioned a paper of Alistair McIntyre's called The Right to Die Garrulously. Right? Yeah. And Alistair wrote this paper because he said, if I'm really sick and I'm dying, I may want to be a curmudgeon. Get this hospice nurse out of the room. Let me groan and moan in my bed drinking scotch. Okay, there certainly are people who when they get in these dire circumstances, they kind of give up on aspects of who they are that otherwise mean a lot to them. And I think people have a right to do that so that's why the ham-fisted consideration is relevant, and the ethical consideration may not be able to do the job alone. Although in my long answer to your question, I give more weight, this is the short answer. Did I understand the question and everything? Yeah, okay. Anybody else? Yeah, Anne. Okay. Of certain behaviors, and um, I mean, you might might 
find any explanation or even a I'm going to repeat this for those elsewhere to try to make sure you're going to. And I was thinking maybe you could think of social therapies sufficiently in terms of emancipation, for example, or reevaluation of concepts rather than reducing certain factors that are bound to the Okay, so let me see if I understand your question. Let me pretend I'm asking it of myself, okay? Um, one of the features of neurological therapy is, is a certain sense in which it's ahistorical and asocial. You know, you're, you're dealing with the brain independent of the social and the cultural and the personal context in which you're dealing with the brain. You're not, you know, if I go in and I see an eye surgeon and I have um, uh, some uh, cataract problems that need to be removed, he's not going to sit there with me and discuss the history of my eyes and the role that my cataracts have started to play in my socially inept behavior. He's not going to say, well, George, the reason that you kept bumping into the wall when you went to Oxford is for you, looking through your eyes is like standing on the beach in a foggy day by the North Sea. I mean, haven't you noticed that? Of course, that's why I'm here, Doc. I mean, don't give me all these metaphors. Just take the bloody things out. Okay. Your point is there can be contextual factors writ large that sometimes ought to be considered and how best to treat a person. Instead of putting the burden on their own response and sensitivity to their circumstances and changing that response and sensitivity, instead of making it seem like they have to do something, oftentimes society has to do something. Oftentimes we shouldn't put people in the situations that some of them are in. And maybe there should be a kind of therapy, sociocultural therapy, that takes this more holistic, contextualized approach. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Um, I'm not familiar with that kind of therapy. Is there a kind of therapy that... Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's all to the good. But here's here's sort of the problem, which I which I have different names for on different occasions. Okay. The problem we all face, kind of as human beings is how to live a life in the situation we've been thrown into. There's at least one concept of Heidegger's that I like. I'm not going to say there's more than one, but there's at least one concept of Heidegger's that I like, the concept of being thrown into the world. You know, you're kind of thrown into the world, and you're in a circumstance, and you somehow got to deal with that circumstance. So part of what we want to teach people is how to deal with their circumstances. 
Now, of course, sometimes the best way to help them is to change their circumstances, but ultimately, we want lessons about self-management. But by all means, if social circumstances can be addressed and social circumstances can be changed, let's look at homosexuality, for instance, okay? There are earlier editions of DSM and of other diagnostic manuals which regarded homosexuality as an illness, as a disorder. Let's look at hysteria, for example. There were classifications of uh, what we would regard as highly uh, uh, misogynistic identifications of an illness that was unique to women and had to do with uh, the composition of their body. And social circumstances have changed. And the change of social circumstances has influenced in part the eradication of these categories from our taxonomy. And it's been tremendously helpful to people who otherwise would have suffered terribly had the social circumstances not changed. Okay, so that's very good. Okay. Yes? Yes. Because addicts are, you can say, um, neither completely rational or irrational. Eh? You can imagine that at uh, times they have really a breakdown in their ability to socialize. Yes. And, uh, and sometimes when you see patients, they really uh, don't care about the future, but they aren't able to uh, confess to that. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any. Wow, this is a fascinating disorder. I've thought a lot about it. I've written a great deal about it. In fact, I'm working right now with Owen Flanagan, who's a recovered alcoholic, on some research on addiction. There's a chapter on it in my book. I've written three or four papers on it. So my short answer is four and a half hours. My long answer is three weeks. So you've really hit me in a bad one there. But I'll be as quick as I can, okay, to give you a sense. Alfred North Whitehead was a very distinguished 20th century philosopher who initially did his work in mathematics here in Great Britain and wrote one of the masterpieces of the history of mathematical logic with Bertrand Russell called Principia Mathematica. Okay. He emigrated to the United States and taught at Harvard. He was a philosophy professor there and he wrote one of the masterpieces of 20th century metaphysics which no one reads anymore, called Process and Reality. And the reason people don't read it is it's borderline not readable. So that's a good reason for not reading something. Whitehead had a gift for picking, I think, wonderful metaphors, especially a gift for picking out different kinds of fallacies. And one of my favorite fallacies that he coined is what he called the fallacy of the complete dictionary. And the fallacy of the complete dictionary is committed when we use a word like addiction and we use it to cover a variety of extraordinarily heterogeneous cases that may all not deserve to be classified in the same way. Okay. So, part of my answer to your question is to acknowledge an assumption behind it, which was sometimes explicit in what you said, sometimes not. Part of what you were saying is there's an awful lot of heterogeneity 
in being addicted. You use words like sometimes this, sometimes that. The assumption not every time this, not every time that. That there are occasions in which an addict can control his or her behavior and occasions not. So let's go back to my earlier point in response to Michael, where I used the metaphor of an accordion with pleats, okay? And I talked about conditions as processes. There are different processes at work in addiction. In the book that I wrote, which, they, which uh, Matthew distributed a flyer for, I pick out eight steps in the addictive process. And each one of those eight steps admits of variations that are quite dramatic and quite discreet. And one of the more profoundly heterogeneous steps is the ability not to relapse. It's highly variable. Some people have it on some occasions, not on others. Some people have it for a long period of time and then suddenly they revert again and they relapse. I mean, it's okay. So the question that you're asking me is, um, what do I think of that variability? How do I think it's best understood? Well, whenever there's variability, I think there's gotta be variability in how things are understood. That unless we wanna commit the fallacy, not of the complete dictionary, but of the final explanation, which I name, we wanna be very careful what we're doing. So here's what's gonna help me to answer your, your question. Can you give me a case, give me a little description of a case that illustrates what you really have in mind? Give me a little story, a little case that would help me grasp what's behind your question, a case of addiction. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but it would help me. something of her future, yeah. she really has big, great plans, and every time I, uh, every time, I really believe in it, and try to make a plan on how to, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. okay, okay, good, excellent. When I worked as an aide in a psychiatric clinic in Boston, I dealt with quite a few people who were alcoholics, and I discovered something about them that was actually told to me by one of the patients. The patient said, George, this is my sixth serious relapse. I would love not to be addicted. I would love to do X or Y. But whenever I think of myself doing X or Y, it's as if I'm standing above myself, looking down on myself, and thinking of myself really as someone else because I am not a person that can conceive of how my life would be organized, what details it would have, unless I was addicted. I can't fill in the blanks of the life I claim I want, okay? Now, I don't know if that applies to other patients or anything else, but I've shared this anecdote 
with people that work with victims of addiction, and in many cases, they say it speaks to a lot of their situations, because what tends to happen is when people struggle not to relapse, they do so in part, not because they're going through the pain of withdrawal, or because they're looking for the kind of buzz that taking something gets, but because they have this kind of emptiness of, of activity, which they don't know how to deal with. When, when one of my friends who was an alcoholic took away from alcohol for five or six years, he did a whole lot of things that were a function of his desire not to relapse. He stayed away from bars, he didn't go into stores that sold alcohol, he stayed away from friends that drank alcohol, he did all this stuff. But the effect of doing this stuff is he didn't know what to put in its place, you know? Now that may have been unique to that case, but, yeah, okay. Uh, depends on what we mean by compulsion. The original concept of compulsion came from Aristotle in his book, The Nicomachean Ethics, and it went like this. Aristotle tells the tale of a sailor at sea who's trying to bring his boat into the harbor, and the wind is so strong he can't control the boat. The boat drifts back out to sea of its own accord. Aristotle describes this poor sailor as compelled to go back to sea. And what Aristotle meant by it is some force or some activity that completely bypasses human psychology. It has nothing to do with human psychology at all. There's nothing the sailor can think or do or want or desire that's going to take him into the harbor. That notion of compulsion, which presupposed bypassing the mind in general, has over time changed into a notion where there's now thought to be a type of compulsion that works through the mind, not against it. And it works through the mind because there are different powers of mind that exert control over other powers of mind. For example, there are powers of mind that are governed more by desire than reflective reason and analysis. Okay, so in philosophy, now the word compulsion, and also to some extent in the law, has left the harbor and left the ship and gotten in the body and gotten inside the head. And if, I'd be happy to show you some things to look at on that if you're interested. Um, because there's so much debate, reasonably so, about exactly what makes compulsion compulsion, I'm a little unhappy with that particular word for understanding addiction, but okay. Thanks, George. Okay, thank you very much.